Galatians chapter 3 in your Bibles, please. Last week we read as Paul used the example of the patriarch Abraham to form a beautiful example of what it means to be justified by faith. Abraham, like any other man in history, believed the testimony of God and it was that sincere faith that he had in the revealed word of God that was imputed unto him by God unto righteousness. Abraham was not found righteous through his personal efforts. He was not found righteous through his success or his um, physical intrinsic obedience. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed a promise of God. And what was that promise? You recall verse 8 tells us that the promise was the gospel. And as we step into tonight, this is very important for us to remember that Abraham was given, excuse me, the gospel and he believed the gospel. And as he believed the gospel, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, in regard to this, we mentioned specifically last week that the gospel which Abraham received was certainly not as, we might say, thorough as the one that we have today. As far as we can tell, Abraham didn't know the name of the promised one, nor did he know the fullest extent of his life and ministry. As we look into the beginning of the New Testament, we see that there was much that the Jew did not really fully understand about the nature of Messiah and his ministry among them. Abraham was simply told that there was coming one of his seed who would spiritually bless all the families of the earth And as Abraham committed his life and direction to those promises, Abraham was justified by God. Now this evening we're going to consider what we, what we would probably rightly call part two of this message. I left last week, I got through it all, but I didn't hit some of the theological doctrinal implications of what we talked about. I taught through the passage itself. I gave us some application, but this evening, um, we're, we are going to use what we now know about this passage to counter some of the arguments that um, people give in regard to this passage, using this passage to argue for some theological ideas, some theological concepts that we would believe to be false. And particularly, as we consider this evening's sermon, we are going to consider um, the controversy that stems from the growing Reformed movement, using this as one of the foundational passages through which they assert that Israel is no longer uh, in God's plan at all, that the church has completely supplanted Israel, has taken all of Israel's promises uh, not so not just in favor, but also in promise, so that the promises given to Abraham and Israel have all effectively been transferred to the church. And we're going to speak on this or in this regard this evening. And as we begin tonight, we must do so with one overriding principle in mind, that the context of Galatians 3 verses 6 through 18 speaks of one specific promise made to Abraham and cannot intrinsically be extended to every promise which Abraham, much less his posterity, was given. There is one promise being spoken of 
particularly in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. And let me ask you a question as we uh, think about this, one which you don't need to answer out loud, of course, uh, but which I do want you to answer for yourself, rhetorically we call it. If you were asked to present the focus of the epistle of Paul to the churches of Galatia, as you have learned it thus far, what would you say that focus is? What would that focus be if you had to present it? Think rhetorically. If you had to present the focus of the epistle to the Galatians, what would that focus be? Now, we perhaps uh, have seen things from different angles as we've gone through, but I should hope that somewhere in your answer is that Paul has been speaking of the gospel, the true gospel, and a uh, in defending against a false gospel, defending the true gospel against a counterfeit Judaistic, legalistic gospel. The context has been the gospel. What it is, excuse me, what it is, what it means, how it is obtained, how it is maintained, and how it affects the Christian life. Now, don't lose this reality that Paul is speaking about the gospel. And uh, yes, as we get into Galatians chapter 3, we are transitioning toward the idea of Christian legalism. We are transitioning toward the idea of how Christians can allow this legalism to encroach into their own lives and live in the light of legalism. But as we understand what Paul is presenting here about Abraham from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18, we see that he is still speaking of, highlighting, uh, bubbling to the top the reality that Abraham lived by faith the same way any man has lived before God, and that is by faith. Now, why does God use the illustration of Abraham here? Why does God inspire Paul to use Abraham as an illustration? To highlight the preeminence of faith over the law. That's why. Because Abraham was pre-law. And the confrontation, the contention today will be that indeed, Paul's focus is so gospel-centric that it was only the promise of the gospel that Paul had in mind as he asserted the relationship between the believer and Abraham. It was only the faith aspect of Abraham's life, not just receiving the gospel, but living the gospel, okay? And don't, don't get me wrong here. It, it, it bubbles into, it, it overflows into the Christian life as well, because as we talk about the gospel, it's not just about receiving the gospel, it's about living it, living the gospel life for the rest of our lives as believers. But this is what Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking of faith, Abraham's faith, the legacy of his faith, his spiritual legacy. So we're going to walk through this passage again, the same passage we walked through last week, not teaching directly what it means, we did that last week, but rather highlighting the doctrinal implications of Paul's statements and linking them together with other passages to give us a better understanding of God's meaning as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this epistle. So verse 6 says this, Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We recognize that this is the thrust of Paul's argument. That Abraham believed God and God accounted, we use the word imputed it to him for righteousness. Abraham was clothed in God's righteousness as a result of believing the promise of God. And we mentioned as well that this statement was made 
initially in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. But in order to understand what it was that Abraham believed in full, we need to do a little more homework. So we're going to jump to Galatians chapter 15. You can feel free to turn there. It will be up on the screen. And read the first five verses of this together. The scriptures tell us this. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said, so shall thy seed be. So Abram, the controversy here is indeed surrounding the physical seed. God, you have promised me a physical blessing. You have promised me a physical lineage. And yet all I have right now is a servant, the, my, my head servant, the one that was born in my house. He's my heir right now. I don't have a son to, to give everything to. How can, how can these promises be given to me when I don't have a son? And God again reiterates to him, that as the stars of the heavens, so will his seed be. And God begins by telling Abram that he is both his protector and his rewarder. That if Abraham will follow God, he will find in God his provision and deep satisfaction both in this life and in the life to come. And Abraham is just confused by this because God has made this promise, but he has no Heir. God says, you'll have a child. Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir. There will be one that comes out of your own bowels, out of your lineage. It will come from you. It will be a blood relation to you that will be your heir. And it is, it is at this point that God says, or the scriptures tell us, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord. And he counted it, that's God counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. Abram believes the promise of God and righteousness is imputed unto him. But Paul tells us that it wasn't simply the promise of a child that was believed on this day. It was the promise of the child that was the final step in Abraham believing a much greater promise. And we're going to skip to, we're going to skip Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 for just a moment and jump to verse 8 to understand what was truly being promised and the promise that was being confirmed here. In verse 8 of Galatians 3, we see this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So we, we see that this is the end. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 15, 6 is the end game. It is the, it is the final piece of a larger puzzle that God had been giving to Abram. And when Abraham finally accepted this by, by faith, that it was imputed unto him for righteousness. See, because the promise that we find in verse 8 of Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, that in thee shall all nations be blessed, 
That promise, as we mentioned last time, is not found in Genesis 15. That's found in Genesis 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the scriptures tell us this. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is the initial call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. God calls him out of his country, away from his family, and asks him to go into a land which God would show him. God tells Abram that he will make of Abram a great nation, that he will bless them that bless him, that he will curse them that curse him, that he will make his name great. And the final promise which he gives, found at the end of verse 3, is that in Abram all the families of the earth would be blessed. So follow this with me here. Abraham leaves his home and his family upon both physical and spiritual promises. There are physical promises here. There are spiritual promises here. The physical promise is that there would be a great nation made out of him, that his name would be great, that he would be protected by God through God's blessings and cursings. The spiritual blessings that were, were, that were made here is that he would be a blessing and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is the gospel. This is God's promise of Jesus Christ. This was the first time that God presented to Abraham his plan to bless the world through his seed, through one that would come through a Messiah named Jesus Christ. Okay, so follow this with me. By that point, now it's, it's likely here, it's likely that there had been years between when this promise is made and when Abram comes out of Ur of the Chaldees and when God appears to Abraham in chapter 15. I keep going back and forth between Abram and Abraham. I hope that's not throwing anyone. His name is changed in chapter 15. Not quite where we have it yet, but Paul is speaking of him as Abraham. Genesis is speaking to him as Abram, so I'm kind of going back and forth. So, so years between the, the, the promise, the initial gospel promise in, in Genesis 12 and the final step here in Genesis 15, when Abram is saying, God, what's going on here? You've promised me all this stuff. You've promised that my seed will, will make a great nation. You've promised that in me, in my seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but I have no seed. And that's when God says, no, 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 you will have a seed. Abraham puts his full faith in this. How can Abraham become a great nation if he doesn't have a child? How can all the families of the earth be blessed through him if he doesn't have a child? And this is when God elaborates upon the promise that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he promises to Abraham that his seed will be more numerable than the stars of the heaven. And hearing God reiterate this promise, Abraham believes it with all of his heart and God imputes that faith to Abraham for righteousness. God elaborates upon the gospel. Abraham hears the gospel. He accepts the gospel and he's made righteous by faith. So this is what we know at this point. And this sermon, uh, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So stay with me here. God made the, the, the promise that God made to Abraham. The promise is, He made him physical and spiritual promises, 
One of these promises is the focus of Paul's illustration, namely the gospel promise, the spiritual promise rooted in the reality that Abraham's uh, Abraham's seed would bless all the families of the earth. Now, at this point, we cannot rule out the possibility that Paul's illustration goes beyond that scope and that it's speaking both of Abraham's physical and spiritual promises because Genesis 15 is not specific in this regard. And we'll get back to this in a moment. But we know that Paul's focus has nothing to do with God's physical promises to Abraham. It has everything to do with the physical promise of the gospel that will be worked out through the seed of Abraham. Now, with that in mind, look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So Abraham believes God. God's promises that Abraham will have a child, that the seed of Abraham would become innumerable, and this was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul then says that all those who are of faith, all of those who, like Abraham, put their full faith and trust in the revealed word of God, the same are children of Abraham. Now notice what I left out there. I left out the definite article. In our King James Bible, we see the same are the children of Abraham. That definite article can be interpreted one of several ways. One of the ways that definite article can be interpreted is identity. Simply identifying us as children of Abraham. The other way is exclusion. You are the children of Abraham, as in no other people are the children of Abraham. You're the children of Abraham. What is interesting about this is that in the Greek text, there is no definite article at all. When the definite article exists in the Greek, the author is intending to focus on identity. When the definite article does not exist, the author is focusing upon essence, quality, or character. It would perhaps to be better to, to translate this verse, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are children of Abraham. Leaving out the definite article altogether from the translation and highlighting what the, art, what the author is highlighting. Not that we are in identity the children of Abraham. Not that we are exclusively the children of Abraham. Rather, in essence or quality or character, we are children of Abraham. We have followed Abraham into faith. Therefore, in the context of faith, we are indeed like Abraham. We are his spiritual lineage. Now, it's interesting. We find this same translation quality in numerous translations. The idea of adding the definite article. I didn't look at the critical Greek text to see if the definite article is added in it. But the New American Standard did not add that definite article and seemed to be a little bit more um, uh, in line with what the text ought to be reflecting there. So Paul's statement here cannot, textually or otherwise, be used to imply that the only people who can be called children of Abraham are those who share Abraham's faith in the gospel. Paul is speaking in a spiritual context, and he calls all of those who follow in Abraham's faith, Abraham's children, 
We could rightly call it Abraham's spiritual children. My wife and I have a unique relationship with several people, several young people that we um, interacted with when we were working in Pensacola, Florida. We were managers at the Rockwall there and we had many young people working for us, college age at the time. And we have a unique relationship with them in that in many ways um, we, we see them as our children. Of course, we have children of our own, but we call those kids our kids. Uh, and there are five or six of them that we'll still today call our kids. And we have a very uh, unique relationship with them. And as we call them our children, it is in no way seeking to displace the blood children that we have, nor is it seeking to minimize the fact that the children that we have sitting with us this evening are in fact our blood relation, but that we have yet a special connection to those other young people. Uh, we see this in the spiritual context all the time. Uh, you lead someone to Christ and you see them in a manner of speaking as your spiritual child, as someone that you had been able to lead to Christ and then you become their mentor and, and in many ways you're kind of a spiritual father figure to them and they are a spiritual child, uh, a spiritual learner, a spiritual disciple to you. And this is the context. This is the idea. There can be many different contexts in which a person is called the child of another. And it doesn't always have to inherently mean that that is an exclusive relationship. In the same way, my wife and I have children, and then we have children. We have the children who are the college kids that we were able to guide and direct through some, some uh, formative years of their lives. And then we have our children who were born of us, who are our flesh and blood, who um, we are raising and guiding. And, and we would call both our children in entirely different contexts. Paul calls us as believers the spiritual children of Abraham. But that doesn't need to preclude the reality that those of Israel could call themselves children of Abraham as well, whether they're believers or not. Paul is speaking within a spiritual context referencing spiritual promises of God to Abraham and within the context of the spiritual, he calls that those that follow in Abraham's faith, his children. The implication here is that when God promised that Abraham's seed would be innumerable, the promise was linked not necessarily to his physical descendants, but to his spiritual descendants. But what the text does not imply because the promise of, innu of innumerable seed was connected to the gospel, and because it was spiritual in nature, it does not imply that this somehow means that there was no physical promise made to Abraham, or that God would not bless Abraham's physical seed in a particular way. When we do this, when you read a promise like this in Scripture, or when I read a promise like this in Scripture, and we take what is said and we draw from it conclusions, when uh, we throw out Israel simply because Paul's context doesn't include them, what we are doing is called eisegesis. It's a Greek word uh, that has been imposed on theology. It, it, the idea of, the, of eisegesis is that we are imposing our interpretation upon the text. What we ought to be doing when we study the Bible is called exegesis. X being the, the uh, preposition in the Greek that means out of. We ought to be drawing truth out of the text. And the truth that we draw out of this text is that there is a spiritual blessing 
that we share, which is the same spiritual blessing that Abraham had, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is exegesis. When we start to imply other things about that, because there was nothing mentioned about Israel here, because uh, there was an, you know, that would be called an, a logical fallacy of an argument from silence, because we don't see this and that, that must mean that God has tossed out Israel. Because the church is called ch- uh, children of Abraham here, that must mean that there's no such thing as children of Abraham for Israel. That's, ec- that's eisegesis. Ice being the preposition meaning into. That's when we are taking our understanding and imposing it on the text. And it's a dangerous place to be. It's a place that we don't want to be. So you and I are children of Abraham in the spiritual context. Absolutely. Does this mean that there's no such thing as a child of Abraham in the physical context? Absolutely not. Does this verse state that you and I, though we may have no blood relation to Abraham, share in the spiritual blessings that God promised to Abraham? Absolutely. Does this mean that there were no promises given to Abraham's physical descendants? Absolutely not. But furthermore, we'll go deeper on this in just a few moments. Physically speaking, it was only a subset of the descendants of Abraham that were made an elect nation, wasn't it? It wasn't all of Abraham's descendants that were blessed. Namely, it was the descendants of his second-born son, Isaac. And then the descendants of Isaac's second-born son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And we must not lose sight of that. That regardless of what we're talking about within the context of Abraham, there were promises, physical promises, reiterated to Isaac and to Israel and to the nation of Israel. And we can't lose sight of that. So stay with me here. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Does this mean that we all receive all of Abraham's blessings? Well, no, that's not, that's not stated. The text is speaking in the context of the promise of the gospel, spiritual promises. The gospel is the focus, the blessing upon all families of the earth through Abraham, the innumerable host that will come from him. This is the gospel. This is the spiritual blessing. So Paul then, uh, you recall in verses 10, 11, 12, he speaks about the law. We're going to skip that. We talked about that last week. In verses 13 and 14, he then says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the promise which was made to Abraham, which he believed, and thus it was counted unto him for righteousness, looked forward to the day when Christ would hang on a tree to purchase redemption for all mankind, and so fulfill the promise that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And while Abraham had lived thousands of years before this promise would come to pass through Jesus Christ, yet this faith that the promise would come to pass is just as real as the faith that you and I have that it has come to pass. Abraham looked forward to the promised one. We look back to the promised one. 
but each of us exercises faith. We follow Abraham's legacy. We receive the same blessing which he received when he believed, which is imputed righteousness, that word that we call justification. Now I ask you, why must we then impose upon this illustration any claim concerning the physical promises of God to Israel? Why must Paul's illustration of the gospel by grace through faith without the law be made to mean that Israel has no place left in God's plan? Why must the reality that you and I are spiritual children of Abraham negate in any way God's favor upon the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Now, perhaps you're answer would be, well, pastor, why not? I think most of you are with me on this one, but uh, hypothetically, or for someone listening on the internet, why not, pastor? You say, why must we? Why shouldn't we? Is really the question, right? How, how, how do we know that it's not you that's simply and not going far enough with the text, pastor? That's eh, possible. But look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Recall we spoke of this last time, that Paul gives the example of a human-to-human covenant and asserts that if a human-to-human covenant is irrevocable and unchangeable, how much more would a divine covenant be irrevocable and unchangeable? And then as Paul seeks to prove that the spiritual covenant was still in effect, he argues that the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, not to Abraham and his seeds. Now, the implication of this was that God had a particular person in mind when he made the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed. That God was not intending to imply that all of Abraham's seed would bless the world, but that one of Abraham's seed, a particular seed, would bless the world. So Paul states that from a spiritual context, it would be one man, one of the seed. And the eisegetical, the the interpreting into the text argument imposed upon this statement is, again, that this means there is no promise made to the seed of Abraham, to his physical descendants, to the nation itself, to which we make several remarks. First, We must understand that the very basis for Abraham's concerns in Genesis 15, when he first goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. When he says that and then Abraham comes back and says, yeah, Lord, about that promise, I don't have a child. The very basis for Abraham coming back to God in Genesis 15 is physical. God, I don't have a physical descendant. If I don't have a physical descendant, my wife being barren, how is it possible that we can have these promises. Abraham recognizes some physical link here. Second, and we mentioned this a few minutes ago, the physical promises toward what we now call the nation of Israel were not truly established in Abraham, were they? They weren't. They were established in Israel. The physical blessings were not poured out on all of Abraham's seed. After all, Ishmael did not receive the physical blessings that God was uh, of, of the nation of Israel. Ishmael's seed was not made elect. Not in the salvific sense. We've talked about this. Was not chosen for this special purpose. 
All of Isaac's seed was not made a special nation. Esau was not given that privilege. It was just Jacob. It was only Israel. And then it was all of Israel's seed. All 12 of his children were given a part in this. God reiterated that promise to the nation at Mount Sinai. He gave them special and different physical promises on Mount Sinai. That regardless of whether or not Abraham's promises were exclusively spiritual in nature or were spiritual and physical, what we see when we get to not Isaac, but Jacob, Israel, and his descendants is physical promises to a physical nation. And as we think about this, to argue that the spiritual nature of Abraham's promises somehow invalidate the promises made to Israel is another logical fallacy. We already talked about one logical fallacy. This would be the fallacy if, uh, if you're interested in this stuff called non-sequitur, meaning it does not follow. It's an argument that doesn't follow the premise. The covenants God made with Jacob and his, his lineage certainly did not invalidate the ones that God made to Abraham. But if Israel's promises are physical, a physical kingdom, a physical king, physical deliverance, physical blessing, then there's no contradiction between those promises made to Israel and the spiritual promises made to Abraham. The fact that Abraham was given spiritual promises does not invalidate what would happen 430 years later when Moses stood at the base of Mount Sinai and sprinkled the blood on the people and they entered into a covenant called the Mosaic Covenant and they entered into a covenant of blessings and cursings and God promised that he would make a great nation and that, that, that he would deliver them from their enemies and he would give them the land of Israel. That is not invalidated through the spiritual promises 430 years Earlier. Now, third, we must understand that some of the promises of Abraham were likely physical in nature. Abraham was promised a physical seed. We see this when Abraham tries to make Ishmael his heir, right? God says, no, Ishmael's not the one. You've got a different physical seed coming. Abraham was promised a physical land. We'll see that. We see that all the way back in Genesis 12. We see it reiterated later in the text as well. The fact that Abraham was given spiritual promises, which his spiritual seed would inherit by faith, that's us, does not invalidate the possibility that he was also given physical promises that would come about to his physical seed. Now, this may be a lot of back and forth. This may be a lot of logic this evening, but I'm trying to formulate an argument here an argument that is based on reason, that shows us that the, the very nature of Galatians chapter 3 as it relates to the spiritual promises that God gave to Abraham that we are inheritors of today does not invalidate Israel, does not invalidate God's plan for them. What we find in Scripture is that God made spiritual promises to Abraham which touch everyone who follows in Abraham's spiritual footsteps by faith. God made physical promises to Israel that they would be a kingdom, that they would inherit the land, that he would rule and reign over them in righteousness. These promises were reiterated to, uh, they were given to Abraham, they were reiterated to Isaac, they were given to Jacob, they were given to the nation at Mount Sinai. They, they were spoken to the prophets throughout their entire history. 
But here's the most interesting part. As we look in the prophets, as we look in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as we look in the minor prophets, what we find is that God told the nation of Israel that He was not going to be able to bring about the physical blessings that He had promised them until such time as they submitted themselves to the spiritual blessing of faith. So God told them that the hindrance to Him bringing about the kingdom that they sought for, giving them the, the fullest extent of the land of Canaan that He had promised them, ruling and reigning over them in righteousness, the hindrance that, that He had here was that they were not a nation of faith. They were a nation of unbelief. They had been a stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked nation from the day He called them out of Egypt. And you can read all in the Psalms and in the Proverbs and, and into the uh, major prophets and minor prophets about how stiff-necked that nation was. They never fully submitted themselves to God. Ever. So the physical promises given to the physical descendants of Abraham are not able to come to pass until those physical descendants of Abraham also become spiritual descendants of Abraham. And this is perhaps, uh, this will perhaps give you insight as you read Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, let me read these words and think about this in context to what I just told you. Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Notice the contrast made right here between Israel and the Gentiles. Okay, He can't be speaking of Israel as the church if he's contrasting Israel and then a group of Gentiles coming in. They would be the same group if they were the same group. Yet he says, All Israel shall be saved as it is written, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from who? Jacob, the non-covenant name of Israel here. The physical descendants. If he was speaking only of spiritual descendants here, he wouldn't have used Jacob. He would have used Israel, right? But he uses the name Jacob to highlight the fact that he's not speaking of the spiritual Israel, which would be the church. He's speaking of or the spiritual descendants of Abraham, which is the church. He's speaking of the physical descendants of Israel here. Jacob. There's a promise that there shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And notice what Paul then says. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. This is essential to understand. Those in the nation of Israel are the enemies of the gospel, but they are beloved of God because they are still an elect nation. They are still God's chosen. Now, for those of you that were present Tuesday night, which is everyone but John, I think. Hope, you asked a question Tuesday night. You asked if Israel had, uh, was spoken of in the terms of election. And the word that I was looking up 
eklektos did not specifically and explicitly speak of Israel. But what I didn't do in my haste, because Tuesday was a busy day, I was not able to get to the other words that also mean elect and are derivatives. And this word here, very, very close. I'll talk about this Tuesday night when we dig into the Greek a little bit. Very close to, to the same derivative. And this is explicitly speaking of Israel here in the terms of election. So here we see without controversy that Israel is being spoken of as an elect group. Does this mean that everyone in Israel is saved? No. If you were here on Tuesday night or if you've heard my speaking of election before, you know that election is not about salvation. Election is about purpose. And so Israel is an elect group. That doesn't mean that everyone in Israel is on their way to heaven. This is what caused the Pharisees and Sadducees so much of a problem in Jesus' day. They thought that they were in by default, and they weren't. And so we see here a definitive reference that Israel, though they are enemies of the gospel, yet they're still beloved of God as the elect unto a purpose. And the purpose with them is not yet finished. So in summary, we read this in Galatians 3.18. Oh, and by the way, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That if God promises things, He's not going to undo them. That if God says, I promise this to you, he, he will not repent of His gifts or His calling. If He called the nation of Israel to be an elect nation to Him, and He gave them conditions upon which they would operate, and He promised them that He would make of them a nation, that He would bring out of Zion and deliver, that all of Jacob would be saved. If He made these promises, He will not repent. Until God fulfills this promise, these promises, the nation of Israel is not yet done in God's mind. They're being set aside right now. They're on pause. But if we look at Israel and we say they're done, that all that was Israel has been transferred to the church, in my mind, we've made God a liar. Because what that means is God did this. God gave them a little... God gave them all these promises. Okay, national Israel, I'm going to save you. Okay, national Israel, I'm going to give you these blessings. Okay, national Israel, I'm going to give you this land. And then it just so happens a couple thousand years later, he says, oh, oh and by the way... By Israel, I really meant only this subset of, of Israel and then the Gentile world. I didn't mention that at the time. I didn't mention that to you throughout these last couple thousand years, but, um, but that's, that's how it is now, so the rest of you are out of luck. God doesn't work that way. God didn't spend thousands of years deceiving Israel <laughs> into thinking that they were going to receive national blessings and telling them they were going to receive national blessings only to redefine what it means to be a nation and redefine what it means to be Israel so that he can get around the fact that many of them didn't want to believe. The promises are still going to be given to Israel. Now, those that have died, they've made their choice. They, if those that have died in their sins, they died in their sins. They're not on their way to heaven. But there's coming a day when Messiah will return and Messiah... God will have put Israel in such a position that everyone in Israel will be ready to accept Him. And that position is going to come through seven years of deep chastening, of misery like Israel has never known. And they will be so deeply persecuted that there will not be anyone in Israel who will reject Messiah when He appears. 
And God is going to position their hearts to exercise their will unto him through chastening. And that's God's plan. Because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So, he says here at the end of Galatians chapter 3.18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The scope of Paul's argument is the gospel. Paul reveals how the gospel was presented to Abraham, how Abraham believed it by faith, how God imputed it uh, to him unto righteousness. This event began a legacy of faith that passed through every generation so that all who would believe the promise of God called the gospel by faith would be declared righteous, became spiritual descendants of Abraham's faith. This promise... Uh, and these promises, they were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So that today we look back upon the promise and faith in the same manner Abraham looked forward to the promise and faith. Everything here has to do with these specific spiritual promises that are wrapped up in the gospel. Whether we're speaking of salvation or whether we're speaking of how to live by faith, all of those blessings are wrapped up in the gospel and that is the theme of Paul's message as he relates it to Abraham. We find nothing in Paul's arguments that implies that the physical promises made to Abraham's seed are invalid. And by that same argument, we recognize that adding physical promises onto spiritual promises some 430 years later does not invalidate the spiritual promises, nor does it even threaten the spiritual promises particularly as God founded the physical blessings on the condition that the nation would first accept the spiritual promises. Finally, let me just say this. Paul wants us to understand a lesson which is essential. That in every generation, with or without the law, salvation has only ever come by grace through faith. He is still proving a point here, which is that whether it's accepting the gospel or living in light of the gospel, it cannot be done in the flesh. It must be done by faith. In every generation, it must be done by faith. So may each of us, even as we spoke of in our time together this morning, determine to live out our faith to recognize the spirit of God's commands and to obey them. That we would follow God by faith. That every standard we set would be founded in faith. That every action we take would be compelled by faith. That there would never be a time where we seek God's favor through our flesh, through our own capacity and effort. But that as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2.20, we would live a life where we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, living, not I, not us, but Christ living in us. That as we yield to Christ, live moment by moment in the reality of what Christ has done for us, we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, we walk in the Spirit, and thus we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is what it meant when we accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. We accepted the reality that we could not get to heaven on our own that there's nothing that we could do to get ourselves there, and that we had to throw ourselves completely on the mercy of the, of, of the one who died for us to redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And it must be that very same premise that we throw ourselves at the cross of Christ every day in order to live in a manner that pleases him. 
This was the spiritual legacy of Abraham. This is what Paul was attempting to illustrate, that Abraham lived a life by faith. He accepted the gospel by faith. If we trace through Abraham's life, he believed that God would give him a son by faith. When God had given him that son, he willingly nearly sacrificed that son on an altar by faith. He lived and the very foundation of everything that he did, the foundation of every decision he made, of the direction he took his family, of the choices he made for his family, was based on the reality that God had made promises to him, and with all of his heart, he believed them. And that is the Christian life. The first time you believe with all your heart the promises of God, you are ushered into the family of God, and you spend the rest of your life so vehemently believing these promises that you are saved by grace through faith, that you have a home in heaven, that you are not of this world, that you are a new creation in Christ, that you spend every effort and you devote everything that you have to living within the context of this Christ life. And that's the legacy of Abraham. The legacy of faith. May it be so in our lives as well. Let's pray.